Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Old Testament professor Mark Hamilton leads us in an exploration of the scriptures that many churches will hear for the first Sunday in Lent 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the second podcast in the series, Preaching in Season. Just as a reminder, Lent is not not just a time to give up something that we like, and it's not a time primarily to wallow in, in remorse or a sense of wrongdoing. It's simply a time of, of turning, of reform. It's a time of reorienting our minds and hands and hearts so that we can... Um, so we can live in the way we intended to live, to be closer to God and closer to our neighbors. Uh, it is a season that prepares us for the glorious news of Easter, the claim that the church has made for 2,000 years almost, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. But to prepare ourselves for such a joyful proclamation, and with all its implications about the defeat of evil and even death itself, we have to do a little bit of, of ground clearing. And that's what Lent's about, and that's what this series is about. This week, the church will hear four different texts, uh, Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11, Psalm 91, 1 and 2, and 9 through 16, Romans 10, 8, B through 14 and Luke 4, 1 to 13. And I'd like to make a few comments on each one in preparation for our hearing those texts this season. Uh, the first one is Deuteronomy 26, beginning in verse 1. When you've come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you should take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and, pro and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power, with signs and wonders and brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. And then you set it down before the Lord your God and bowed down before the Lord your God. Then you with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given you in your house. It's a, it's a ritual instruction text. It's very simple. When you've when the harvest is getting underway, you take an offering, just a sample of the harvest. You bring it to the, to the sanctuary and you offer it to God. Uh, 
You, it's hard to know the prehistory of this. This this sounds like the sort of thing you might do in your local community, um, and that in a lot of ways would be much more practical. But Deuteronomy is 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 tr trying to talk about the central sanctuary, the one place where everybody goes, uh, and so it takes a, a ritual that might have been local originally and makes it national, makes it something that everybody participates in. So however you think about that, it is instructive that uh, the ritual can involve anybody. It's simple, easy to understand, and it orients the person performing it in various ways. It, it, it orients them to the past, to remember the good things that God has done for them, to remember the ancestors, to remember that the ancestors were different from us. They were, uh, the text says, a wandering or, or a perishing Aramean. Arameans are the, the people who live north of Israel in what's today Syria, Damascus and other places. So our, our ancestor wasn't us is part of, <laughs> part of what the text is saying. The ancestor was different. And our ancestor was vulnerable. Our ancestor was in trouble and needed help. And that was of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the people during the period of the Exodus. Uh, this, the, our, our story is a story of vulnerability and of need and not a story of human triumph. That is part of Deuteronomy's core theology, that if you're, if you're looking for human triumph, you probably have to look elsewhere than the people of God. You have to look to some other some other place. Uh, if you look to the people of God, if you recite the story of our ancestors, you recite the story of need and deliverance. That I think is important during our season because we very much are, are trying to renegotiate the past and people have different views. Some people want to defend everything in the past and get very upset if we try to uh, cancel as they see it part of that past, but that is not, not, not the biblical way, not the Christian way. The, the biblical way, the Christian way, the Jewish way for that matter, are to tell the truth about the past, to acknowledge insofar as possible the strengths and weaknesses of those who preceded us. And here, uh, that, that's built into the ritual. Uh, but what's also built into the ritual is another bit of the orientation. It's an orientation to God. That the ritual reminds us of our dependence on God. Very simple ways, food for the day. But we are reminded of that. And also, this is the last thing I'll notice about this text. It's an orientation to other people. The end of the, the, end of the text talks about sharing the food we bring. So the basket might be left with the altar, but we bring other food too. We have a meal, we share it with the Levites, the people who don't own land, but spend their time taking care of the sanctuary. And with the strangers, the migrants, the people who don't have family ties and don't own property, the people who are most in need. We share what we have with those folks because our story of deliverance is a story that causes us to be people who seek deliverance for others as well. This is baked into the theology of Deuteronomy and indeed of the whole Old Testament and the whole Bible. It's near the center of Christian theology. 
that we uh, we do not get what we get so we can then lord it over the people. Rather, we receive with gratitude what we've received and we share it with generosity with others. A, a very similar theme, though, in a very different vein, appears in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 10, where we get this long discussion about uh, whether God has kept the promises to Israel or not. And the answer, of course, is that yes, God, God, keeps, God keeps the promises to Israel, does not abandon the people, but rather acts in order to save them. And so, so we get in, in chapter 10, beginning in verse 8, this long, this long discussion uh, that I'll try to talk about. What does the Bible say? Paul asks. The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is engaging in this long discussion about the nature of God's rescue of the human race. And whether that is confined only to Israel or only to the Gentiles or whether it embraces all. And the answer, of course, is it embraces everyone because all stand in need, all stand in need of redemption, and all are able to receive redemption. And so what humans need to do, he says, irrespective of, of our pasts and our commitments, our heritage, and on and on, is to call out to the God who saves. And the God who saves will hear. We have this quotation, uh, this word is near you from Joel, very reminiscent of Deuteronomy. We have this, this sense that uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. God is not a picker and a chooser. Uh, God does not say no to the one who cries for help. God who embraces the one who cries out with a true heart for help. It is open to all. And this is a very daring statement. What does Paul mean when he says believing in Jesus, that Jesus is Lord? You know, in our society, after 2,000 years of Christian influence, good or bad, and not all of it was good, unfortunately, uh, saying I'm a Christian, Jesus is Lord, is not that hard a thing to do in most circles. Now, admittedly, in some places it gets you looked at funny because of the bad behavior of some Christians. Uh, because some Christians have embraced uh, beliefs that put the rest of us in a bad light. They've embraced a sort of animosity toward virtually everybody else in the world. But that's, that's a betrayal of the Christian faith that we're talking about, not, not the real thing. The real thing is fairly easy to confess in our society. But it was not so in their world. 
In their world, the idea that you would follow a crucified savior was at best crazy, and at worst pernicious, dangerous. And so Christians were persecuted to say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, not Zeus, not Caesar, not the empire, uh, is a dangerous statement. It gets people killed. It got Paul killed, ultimately, if, if we believe the stories about him from only a few generations after his lifetime. And I, I think we mostly do. And so to embrace this dangerous and wild idea that Jesus is Lord, that the forces of evil, whether political or social or however they're manifested, demonic even, those, those forces do not triumph in the end because Jesus is Lord. Death itself does not triumph in the end because Jesus is Lord. To make that confession is a daring thing. And it shows a desire to be in the presence of the God who saves. And God, being a merciful God, receives that confession and welcomes the person making it. That's also clear in our other New Testament reading today, a very familiar story, the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, a story that appears in the other synoptic gospels as well. Uh, the story is that after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the desert. And here we have it. Uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So the same Spirit that Christians receive is also guiding him. He goes into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days by the devil. And then we get samples of that, just snapshots of that 40-day experience. 40 days in hell is what it sounds like. But the, the, the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, uh, if the announcement that was made at your baptism not very long ago is true, then then turn the bread and turn the stones into bread. You know, do do like like the men in the wilderness, do some cool thing like that. And he says, you don't live by bread alone. Then, then the temptation is he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and offers them to him. And he says, only you should worship the Lord your God. And then finally, the one that I would just point us to today is the last of the temptations. He says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for him here, for it is written, he will command his angel, angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so you will not dash your foot against a stone. Now, he, he quotes here from the text we'll hear from in a minute from Psalm 91. He says to, uh, says to Jesus, if you are who you are, say you are. Prove it. Prove it through some virtuosic demonstration of your faith. Prove it through your courage. Prove it that by in a way that everybody will look at it and say, ah, yeah, he's really who he says he is. That's a temptation that I think believers still face, not jumping off of buildings usually, but doing things that are reckless and in many cases irresponsible to prove our faith. And we've seen that the last two years during the pandemic as Christians are often 
unfortunately, at the forefront of ignoring science or defying science and uh, pretending that somehow our irresponsible behavior is really an act of faith when it isn't anything of the sort. It's exactly the sort of misunderstanding of faith as the one that the devil tried to induce Jesus into embracing. We put ourselves on the wrong side here. He says, don't put God to the test. We are not in the business of making life more difficult so God can prove that God is God. God's already God. Our job is to acknowledge that. Uh, we don't have to go looking for miraculous intervention when the natural is already available to us because the natural is also created by God and is also a place in which God redeems the world. So we don't have to go looking for the supernatural. And this text, I think, reminds us of that fact. Lent may be a season when we put aside our immodesty in religion and embrace the ordinary work of God in our lives. So that our need, our need for something spectacular all the time may be a pathology that we have that says, I'm not contented with the normal. I will only be contented with the spectacular. It's a disease that infects many religious people, maybe all of us. The last text, though, we do need to hear because it's not just a dismissal of the, the statement. The devil, in, in his encounter with Jesus, has the intelligence to quote the Bible, or rather misquote it, quote it out of context, misuse it and turn it into a sort of power trip. But the words still do exist, and so we should hear them in their, in their original context in some, something that makes more sense. So Psalm 91, one of these very beautiful psalms in what's called the third book of the Psalter, uh, beginning in Psalm 90, uh, uh, a part of the Psalter that has to do with uh, the kingship of God, among other things. Uh, verse 1 uh, gives us the, the thesis statement of the, the, the psalm, if you will, the, what it's all about, the subject. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in on the shadow of the Almighty. So it's this is a psalm about those who are who try to live in the presence of God, who try to embrace uh, the things of God with their lives, not by abandoning normal things, but realizing that the normal things are also things of God. So they've taken shelter under God's wings and in God's shadow. To those are the metaphors for being used here. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Again, uh, the Psalms are full of poetry. So, uh, so the fowler is trying to catch birds. So obviously we're not literally talking about birds. Nobody's trying to th throw a snare around us. They're trying to stop us in other ways. And from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions. God, God is imagined as having giant wings. We see the same blessing in uh, the book of Ruth, for example. And his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So this, this series of images of God's protect, protection of us. You don't have to fear disease or pestilence. You don't have to fear 
dangers in the world. Not because you're going to ignore them or pretend that they, um, they aren't real, but because you're going to remember that their reality is not, is not the only thing that matters. They don't ultimately control us. There's something much bigger than they are in our lives. The Lord is a refuge and a strength. Sometimes people understand Christianity as, as a kind of escapism. And I understand that critique because sometimes some expressions of it seem like that, frankly, and may be that. But that's not actually, not actually true. Sometimes we do need refuge. You know, what makes you think you're not in danger? <laughs> you know, if you're not in danger in this world, it's probably because you're a danger to somebody else. Uh, no, this world is full of difficult things. And some of them are internal, inside my own soul. Some of them are external. But in either case, I, I, the, the faith is about finding uh, refuge from those things. This psalm ends with this promise in verse 14. So like so many psalms, it shifts speakers. Sometimes it's the psalmist addressing people. Sometimes it's the psalmist addressing God. Sometimes it's the other people speaking back. And sometimes it's God speaking. And that's what we get near the end. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. In other words, the devil wasn't totally wrong when he told Jesus that God will protect him. God does protect us. But what he was wrong was in calling on Jesus to use that protection as a road to power. Since I'm a Christian, I don't have to be I don't have to treat you well. I don't have to worry about you. I'm going to show off. That that was the mistake or rather a willfully chosen wrong path. But here uh, there is a sense that God does deliver. When they call me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. So there is this sense of that uh, God does protect. So when this psalm in verses 11 and 12 give the lines that the devil century late, centuries later quotes in the Gospels, it means something very different than what he meant. And that difference is worth our reflecting on because we can use the Bible as a weapon against other people, innocent people. We can use the Bible as a way of self-glorification, and that happens routinely. But those are misuses and, in fact, gross abuses of the text. That's why Luke insists they come from, well, the wrong side of the, the eternal divide. And so we have this, but we have in this psalm a sense of divine protection. That this life, even if we experience difficulty, the difficulties cannot, do not, will not, define us in an ultimate sense. So these are our reflections for the first Sunday in Lent. We have much more to hear, much more to learn, and much more to savor 
as we grow in our hope so that when Easter comes, we can hear truly and joyfully the news, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Thank you for listening. I look forward to conversations with you in the future. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.